Welcome to episode 228 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson. I'm Brian Levin. Today we caught up with Colleen Bake. She is a freelance designer. She was at Twitter for a really long time. And we managed to catch her on the uh, episode before she leaves for New York. She's done some amazing work. It's an awesome conversation about some pretty interesting things. Before we get into it, I want to thank our sponsor for making this very specific, very special episode of Colleen possible. That sponsor is our friends at Fuse. Fuse makes it easy to make better apps with less code. Fuse makes views. Fuse makes views responsive and adaptive, native and snappy. Now I'm just reading their features page. Fuse is a... (laughs) Fuse is a tool that makes it so you don't have to prototype. You can actually just build a thing. Don't waste time. Don't make throwaway things. Make things that can actually ship because that's the best use of your time. Fuse is a set of tools that makes it easy to build apps for iOS and Android you're writing a special format called .ux, which is their own file type. And what that compiles down to is native iOS and Android code. So what you're shipping is native code with all the benefits of native performance, native APIs, all that goodness. But it's wrapped in a really beautiful abstraction in their .ux format with really wonderful tooling for previewing, testing, collaborating with teams so that you can make one app in one place, deploy it to two app stores, uh, and everything just works. They've they've totally rethought the way that people build and uh, release applications and are just continuing to add tons and tons of features that make it easy to design responsive and adaptive layouts that work on all device sizes. Uh, you don't have to get super complicated into view logic. They take care of all of that for you uh, with really nice structured components that you can just drop into place and things will work and you can preview them on your Mac or PC. It's a whole workflow that that they've totally rethought to make it easy to build better apps. It's awesome. And they have a pro plan that gives you access to something called Fuse Studio, which will give you a visual set of tools uh, to adapt and adjust these uh, these parameters of of your application. So you can use a visual tool if you upgrade to the pro plan. If you go to their site and use the code DD, FuseTools.com, and then use the code DD at checkout, that'll save you 70% off on a year if you get it by December 31st, which is coming up. This episode is coming out 1222. So you got a week. Uh, you can think of Fuse Wait, like... it's coming out on 1227, so you have four days. Less than a week. Uh, think of Fuse like Unity, uh, but instead of designing games, you're designing apps. They're going to make it really easy and provide all these powerful tools so that you can work better together. One pipeline all the way through. Sounds awesome. You can totally use it completely free if you want. That's just the .ux file type. You can build everything you could with the studio plan or the pro plan. But if you do make money, if you do have a method of income from your design and engineering work... Upgrade to pro. Upgrade to pro. And we're going to make it cheap again. That's at fusetools.com. Use that promo code DD and you're going to save a whole bunch of money. Uh, and if you're just interested in what's possible, you can go to fusetools.com, click around their documentation, their features. You can see all of their APIs and what's possible, all the, the first party components. They've got a ton of stuff and they're continuing to build more and more. Uh, so go check them out at fusetools.com. Thanks once again to Fuse. And with that, let's get into episode 228 with Colleen Bake. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Colleen Bake, and I'm an independent designer and advisor here in San Francisco, soon to be in New York City. <gasps> Why are you leaving? Uh, you know, I've always wanted to go to New York and live there, and I feel like it's now or never. Um, kind of have this nice, I'm freelancing now, so I have a little more flexibility in that respect, and 
um, it just kind of all happened. I went to kind of check things out, you know, yeah. talk to a bunch of people. I'll have to rebuild my network and um, met up with a broker and we just decided to look at some places and we actually found a place. Cool. So Sweet. that really kickstarted a bunch of things. So that was like the first step was like deciding where you're going to live and, yeah. <laughs> and if you were going to move. Yeah. Interesting. No, I just wanted to do it for a long time and I think that it just feels right. Um, and I actually have a lot of friends over there and mm-hmm. it's just really exciting. I, I'm just going to throw out, there's 12 months in a year and in New York, there's like three of those months that are just kind of shitty. I love it. And you I, picked one of them. I <laughs> love extreme weather. You want to move to New York? And, okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm surprised. People, I actually... Um, I went went to school uh, near Boston, so oh, I, I remember it was there was like a crazy blizzard the first year that I was there, and all of us Californians mm-hmm. were so naive. And I remember the first snowfall happened, and so all of us Californians ran out and and were saying, "Oh my God, it's snowing!" And you know, let's make snowballs when we come in. We're like, we're going to put this in the freezer as you know souvenirs. <laughs> and the New Yorkers are looking at us like, "Yeah, we'll see how cute you think uh-huh. it is." And Idiots. Or, you know, two days or whatever. <laughs> and then, you know, it was a huge blizzard historically, and we had to borrow tractors from Canada. Was that like snowpocalypse or whatever? It was pretty much, we were quarantined yeah. in our dorms. Yeah, it was pretty hardcore, but I loved it. Hmm. I love snow. I love humidity. All right. I love well, spring. I'm yeah. glad you love it. Yeah. I, I hear that. You're going to get it all. <laughs> New York is lovely this time of year. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm uh, excited. Besides. Well, I guess no longer house hunting, but what are you working on? Well, um, so right now I'm tying up a bunch of loose ends, you know, just before mo- making this crazy cross-country move. You're jumping out next month? Uh, January 5th. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so trying to like meet up with everyone, you know, um, friends, make sure I have like the conversations that I want to have. And uh, so not working that much, but I've been working with Sequoia for... Mm-hmm. Um, since last year when I was a visiting designer. And so Buckhouse and I get along super well. We actually joke that we're kind of like long lost twins or something because we have such similar tastes in like aesthetics and art and music and things like that. Um, So I love working with him and I kind of go in, you know, on an as needed basis and kind of a regular. But that's as a freelancer? Yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. It's fun. And... When you move to New York, do you anticipate doing remote client work with people here? Or you, do you really want to pick up company work out there? I may continue to work with work Sequoia. Oh, okay. um, we still have to kind of figure out how that's going to work. But excited to explore that. Um, I have worked remotely with uh, Buckhouse before. And it's worked out pretty well. And I think we have tools now that will enable us to kind of do that hmm. um, seamlessly. When I was contracting with them... Um, pushed um uh, abdur chowdhury's thing he was an early data scientist at twitter um so i did some contracting work for him and i remember he had a huge uh half his company his startup was in new york and here we have an office here um and i just remember they had like monitors set up and it literally felt like they were in the room with us yeah you know you just like look up and say hey eric you know not the uh, segues with the ipads on them what was it? This well, that no, sounds no, no, miserable. We didn't have that. It wasn't. <laughs> okay. it wasn't was it life that size? Hardcore. No, no. It was just huge, and it was like hanging on the wall. And um, we had a system at one of my old companies called Life Size that was like 
it was basically just always on between the two companies. You could see everyone else in the Texas branch, and we were here. So yeah, cardboard nice. cutouts of your team members. Yep. Yeah. And you just yell at those. Yeah. yeah. Spooky. So we'll see how that works. But I'm definitely. I mean, I've been spoiled here because. Mm-hmm. Um, my network is pretty strong just having worked at Twitter and um, been here for a long time. I've been here for almost 20 years. Yeah. So going out there, it's kind of a different scene, obviously. Um, not so tech-focused, which is, you know, attractive to me. I really um, appreciate the diversity in, in kind of the professions that you come across there. And um, That seems to be a lot of people's, like, goal. Yeah. Kind of get out of the... The yeah. bubble, filter bubble. Exactly. Kind of thing. So I'll have to hustle a little bit. I haven't really had to do that here, but. Um, it's like the first day of school. We've got to exactly, make friends now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I've been talking to a bunch of people and reaching out and. Preemptive yeah. coffee planning. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure. That's yeah. kind of what I, I planted seeds. Would you like to go get coffee in two and a half months? <laughs> Dude, honestly, I do that even here. I think I actually <laughs> like, said that. The coffee shop next door, yeah. I'm like, yeah, I'm free. Yeah. In March. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Let's do it. Exactly. No, it's um it's a whole new thing. So uh That's exciting. It's very exciting. Yeah. And it kinda Scary, sucks because I only just met you last week. I know. And now I just you're can't leaving in a month. It. So. I can't believe that time. It. Well, that's why she's leaving. <laughs> so mean. <laughs> so I met you the uh, last week. So are you week, the nice boy and, immediately, and the mean boy? Yeah. Yeah. Well yeah. at least he's the nice boy. We'll see. Yeah. For now. Um, well, we should back up. I, I want to start at the beginning. Where are you from? So I was born in Seoul, Korea. Um, I came here to California when I was around eight. Uh, and so I grew up in Southern California. And it was funny because I remember, you know, like Southern California, you're growing up there and the weather is so nice all the time. So when people were like, oh, yeah, the weather is so nice. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's like this every single day. So, this is life. Yes. This is SoCal. Yeah. Get used to it. And then I went to school back east. I went to Wellesley, uh, which For was what? an incredible experience. I, I actually majored in French. Huh. So I have a very circuitous route to design. Um, so I majored in French and I did minor in computer science. I hated it. Um, Why'd you do I it? loved French, but I, I hated That is science. an interesting combo. One it language, is not the other. Because, and I think I'm a pragmatist at heart. So mm. um, I, it was kind of my way of compensating for the luxury of majoring in this thing that really had no practical application in so far as I could see, unless I was yeah. going to like teach it or something like that. It was really just my love of language, and I've loved language for, you know, as long as I can remember. Like, I was an interpreter in, in high school for Spanish, and I actually wanted to go to grad school for writing. And so design was kind of this, I thought it was going to be a, a little, you know, temporary thing. Um, How'd you get into it? So I did an internship in the summer of my junior year, um, after I came back from studying abroad in France, did some multimedia, you know, like UI design work for this um, educational kiosk at Logan Airport in Boston, where this artist was doing like these huge murals of like marine um, scenes. And, you know, kind of got into like multimedia visual design and putting a website together and, and a system together for the kiosk. And then, I don't know, it was kind of the dot-com boom was kind of happening around then. 
And we had some people already out here, graduates, um, alumna from Wellesley, and got recruited, came out here, and I started working for Sun Microsystems, of all places. Mm. In Menlo Park? In Menlo Park, yeah. I think it's a Facebook. It's Facebook now, it's yeah. It's Facebook now, yeah. They so still have all the signs. Do they? Have you been there? I haven't. All, all the meeting rooms still have the like, in, in the old campus, have like the Sun Microsystems logos on the, the windows and stuff. And they they say it's like really metaphorical. It's like, just remember. <laughs> just remember what could happen Sun to Microsystems you. was worth $300 billion oh and then didn't exist. <laughs> it's pretty humbling, yeah. you know. Um, I was there for quite a while. I actually started out as a visual designer, worked on the Java look and feel guidelines, you know, which was like the hot thing back in the day. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. yeah. I'm really dating myself. No, that's fine. But Design well, systems. He sets on microsystems. So. <laughs> Design systems, the hot new thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I think that I kept telling myself that, okay, next year I'm going to go to grad school. Next year, I'm going to go to grad school. I'm going to leave tech. And this is just a way for me to pay off my school loans. And it's a temporary thing. But as time went on, I realized that it wasn't a temporary thing. You got hooked. I Yeah, <laughs> I was hooked. And um, that's when I decided to leave Sun because I realized that, you know, I didn't want just the easy gig where I wasn't growing hmm. very much. And I was antsy to do something new. So I left... I explored working at like Intuit for a little while because this whole Macromedia thing had happened. Um, and with that, Adobe, a bunch of Adobe designers had jumped ship and had gone to Intuit kind of en masse. And it was kind of an exciting time because they wanted to do something um, different, you know, and change how they were doing things at Intuit. So I was there about for about a year or something. Ultimately, you know, I think the cultures just didn't mesh, and um, I ended up leaving and, and freelancing. Were you using your uh, computer science studies at all? Like, did you get into you development know, in these roles, or was it purely visual stuff? I feel like it has been useful in that um, I it helps me hack at things, like, I can write some code and put together my own like websites and I know what a callback is, things like that. Slow when down. I was at I know <laughs> when I was at Twitter, I remember when we were um, one of the projects that we were working on was um, rebuilding mobile.twitter.com at the time and you know, I did actually submit code to production. Yeah. So that was really oh, cool. Oh, it feels good, huh? Yeah. So getting your hands dirty I like that it kind of um, gives me a ground to stand on and gives me enough so that I can go off and kind of, I don't know, bootstrap, right? I, I joke around with friends because I, I tried to wean off Twitter for a little bit yeah, and only use the mobile website, yeah. but then the mobile website got so good. Yes, like, isn't it amazing? It's like just as good as the app. Yeah. <laughs> so like shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. A good friend of mine is um, Nicholas Gallagher, mm-hmm, and he mm-hmm. just did a phenomenal job there. Um, you know, like really um, driving that effort. Yeah. So I think we, we did a little bit of a spoiler here uh, uh, with the Twitter stuff. Yes. But, so you left into it and yes, you freelanced I freelanced for a, for a while. Um, and my route to Twitter was also pretty indirect. Because I, you know, I was freelancing and I remember one day I get a call. It was a cold call from Alad Gill, um, who's at Color Genomics now. He's a co-founder with um, Othman Laraki. 
And they had started this thing with a handful of other ex-Google people. So Alad and Othman were product folks from Google. And they had like four or five engineers from Google, ex-Google engineers. And they had started this um, new startup called Mixer Labs. And they were focusing on like a geolocation product. And I remember going in thinking that it was kind of an interview for freelance stuff. And it turned out that they didn't want a freelancer. Um, And they, uh, we had this day of unconventional interviewing, which Mm. I found really great. And I actually wish more companies did this because I came in and I met with a lot and Othman separately. They gave me their spiel and gave me an idea of what the product was. Then they gave me a problem to work on that they were working on. And they thought, why don't you noodle on this for, you know, a couple of hours or whatever. And I actually really enjoyed that because I feel that quite often the interview process in this industry is so artificial, you know, and it really doesn't give you a sense of the person's actual skills, how they might work on, you know, the product problems day to day, right? Because they're kind of like put on the spot and you have to like whiteboard things and shoot from the hip. And I'm actually really bad at that. Um, I prefer to kind of like sit back and like think about the problem, noodle on it. And I think designers really need that too. It's really important to have that space. So I sat there and I remember it was so quiet in the room. So there were. Were they with you in the yeah, room? Yeah, they oh were just God. cranking on their thing. Okay. It was as if I came into work yeah. to work with them. And I liked that. It also gave me a sense for like how the vibe would be. Mm-hmm. So I think I did some visual explorations of um, trying to like figure out like how to organize some information and trying to make sense of the problem. And then at the end of it, um, I felt a little bit abashed because I felt like. I didn't really do much here. I don't know if this makes sense. And they gathered around me and I kind of walked them through my thought process. And I remember a lot saying, well, you really get it, which was shocking to me because I thought that they would be very nonplussed. So then they offered me the job before I drove out of the lot. A A lot called. (laughs) Yeah. And I wasn't planning on accepting it on any sort of like permanent position but something told me that like the chemistry was so good and if there's anything I've learned from being in the industry is that the people are so important like how you get along with them you're going to be working with these people day in and day out especially in a startup environment uh, where you're going to go through some hard times together you're going to spend a lot of time together even more than you do with your own family your children your spouse so I something told me that I should take it. And I took it. And I worked with them for about a year. And were, were you making like risk calculations or no, making financial like trade-offs or I just don't think that got, way. Okay. You know, for better or worse, I'm I think that some part of me does these calculations. I always feel like I should, but I like kind of yeah. don't. It's a pretty emotional decision making process exactly. to some degree. Mm-hmm. And so it was very emotional. Um, I thought, what could I lose? I was, you know, I felt like this was a good opportunity. And if anything, I'd learn a lot. So that was for about a year. And then we got acquired by Twitter. Okay. I didn't want to go to Twitter. Um, How'd they deliver the news? (laughs) I was actually on vacation. Oh, shit. At the time. Well, I knew that things were kind of rocky. 
we were, you know, like struggling a little bit. And, and I think this was the, the way out. And uh, yeah, geolocation was like the hot thing at the time. You know, Foursquare was kind of mm-hmm. taken off and uh, we Koala had a geolocation and, service. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Twitter engaged with us on that front. And I came back from vacation. I came back from Hawaii. And Aladdin often sat me down and said, well, so it happened. <laughs> you, boss. <laughs> so, You're hired. <laughs> right. And uh, so Twitter happened. Um, For I was, context, this was 2009? This was 2000, late 2009. And I was scared. I was petrified because I really felt so out of my depth. And that was really the reason I didn't want to go to Twitter is because I felt like I wouldn't fit in. I wasn't good enough. And, you know, who was there at the time? So Doug Bowman, whom I had looked up to, you know, he was really this kind of luminary that I had kind of been following, you know, in the early part of my career. And so he was leading the team and a bunch of like ex. So there was another ex Google person there. Um, Jana Shamas, Vitor Lorenzo was there. I think Leland was from LinkedIn. So Trammell. So there were only a handful in the design team. There were about five or six or something like that. And I felt like they really had, I don't know, they had like formal training. You know, um, Doug, of course, he had like a graphic design background as well. Um, He's been like doing this for such a long time. You know, Jana had worked at Google and just had gone through the rigors of these processes that they had in place. And I hadn't experienced any of that. I was just kind of this very, like, scrappy um, person who had just kind of learned the ropes just without a formal background. So I was very intimidated. And I would say that I actually really cut my teeth at Twitter as a designer. And I'm really fortunate to have experienced that. I am having a hard time separating like what I know about Twitter today, which is it's a huge public company yeah. with a massive design team and a, a really large product surface area. What was it? What was going on in 2009 when you joined? It was all, it was very intimate. Um, I think earlier we were looking at, you know, the recruiting videos from back then and you can really see the level of kind of whimsy and playfulness and the kind of innocence that was um, a huge part of the company at the time. We were all friends. So just to give you an idea, you know, like when I came on board, everyone knew our names, you know, we walked in um, and I realized that they had had photos of us on the fridge <laughs> so that everyone yeah, cool. could memorize what we looked like and could greet us by name when we walked in. I mean, unthinkable today, yeah. right? But that from day one really fostered the sense of like you're coming into your house. And certainly there was a lot of chaos too. I mean, we were kind of the media darling for a long time. And there was a lot of attention. It was like we could do no wrong. We had celebrities in the office all the time. It really felt like every other day somebody was in. And I look back on my tweets from back then. I'm like, oh, I'm here hanging out with Conan or Kanye or, you know, Snoop Dogg or something. Who was your favorite encounter? Oh, God. Snoop Dogg was really fun. Yeah. He was hilarious. He just didn't give a shit, you know. But um, we worked really hard, too. It, and there was so much heart. you know. And there still is. I really love the design team. You know, I, I saw the design team go from, you know, 
five or six or whatever it was to 70 something mm-hmm. when I left in late 2014. So I'd been there for almost five years. And I remember one of the designers telling me like, wow, I've never experienced something like this where the design team was so close knit. Um, even when it got really big, we were very, very close and we're all very different, you know, different, mm-hmm. like the, um, gamut of age was really like broad, um, specialization, you know, background. Um, but somehow we all kind of fit together and we had a lot of fun. I mean, we, we went through a lot together. So you said when you first joined, you, you almost didn't want to join cause you felt inferior yes what was it like when you actually walked in and they're like all right well (laughs) here you are you better better do something i just remember struggling in the Mm. beginning partly because i think imposter syndrome makes you not ask for help as much as you should probably and you just kind of suffer in silence and you try to like watch as much as possible and um i think that you know I, I learned so much. I think in the beginning, you know, the, some of the signs of um, an inexperienced designer is that you have a lot of stubbornness. You're not as flexible as you should be. You're not as relaxed, right, to kind of um, working with others and like listening. And I think that, you know, that probably made things a little bit hard for me in the beginning where I was just like, I need to be really sure about this decision that I'm like proposing and I need to stick by it. I am a professional and I know what I'm doing for sure. (laughs) Yeah. But turned out okay. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, Anything in particular that was helpful at that time to sort of break down maybe that stubbornness or or the walls you'd put up? You just make mistakes. Mm -hmm. You make mistakes and you, you know, there was, so for, for example, um, one of the, big, larger projects that I worked on was launching photos. We didn't have native photos at the time. And I think this is like 2011 or something like that. And it What just, was going on then? It was like hot-loading hot TwitPic or... Yeah, White yeah, Frog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually have Holy some photos shit. that Photo don't exist stuff. anymore. Yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of sad. Yeah. But, and 2011 seems like it was pretty recent, but it really feels like That's eons so ago. That's so crazy. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember that. Wow. And I remember what... Wasn't it around that time that they like cut off Instagram or something? Or was that later? Yes, it was later. Okay. I think it was later. Maybe Instagram wasn't even around then. I don't know. Yeah. Super funny. But it feels like eons ago just because I was such a different person and such a different designer. And uh, I remember, you know, I was just really into pushing for like, we need to support multiple photos and tweets. And we ended up making the decision, you know, collectively to do um, only one photo at a time. And actually, that was the right way to go. Even if it wasn't what, I mean, even if we were on the path to doing more, I think it was a great thing to kind of be simple Mm -hmm. um, and start out very, very uh, simply in that way. And I just remember it was such a fuss, you know, with me where I was just trying to really push for that point of view. And um, I think it wasn't very productive, but I, it was a good lesson and just being more open and, you know, just relaxing and like seeing what happens, you know, you, you go with a simple um, solution and, you know, you think about it as an iteration rather than this is the last time you're going to be able to touch this or something like that. And I think that was the way that that's the way that a lot of like inexperienced designers tend to think. Uh, um, I'm from ca- my experience. Can you 
explain why you ended up like why one photo was the better decision? Was it just because it's simpler and like I you just have to was, build less controls? I think that was the most. Um, it, there was a lot of complexity that would have been introduced sure. um, by going the other route. And so, you know, from an engineering perspective, as well as from like a user flow perspective and so on. So it seemed like a pretty pragmatic decision to make. I think so. Yeah. 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 I, it was more elegant as well. Yeah. I, mm. I, I don't like situations like that when I encounter them where it's like maybe it's not always super obvious, but it's like, I could see that in the future we're going to want to support multi-photos or we're going to want to like in the future we'll probably want to do this thing and just wanting to tackle it right now. Like, well, we'll probably do this in the next year. Like, mm. let's just do it. Um, but as you pointed out, like sometimes that's not the right decision. Like the sequence does matter. I don't know. Maybe, I mean, maybe I'm sometimes it helps to train users too, like with a simpler version first and then improve it later. I don't know. Yeah, there were a bunch of reasons just like engineering wise and yeah, user flow wise. But yeah. um Again, I think that when you are more inexperienced, you tend to want to just do it all at once, like solve the problem and have a watertight solution um, rather than thinking, you know, having a little more humility, actually, and thinking about problem solving as an iterative process and saying that, hey, actually, I don't know how this is going to be. Why not gather information first, like get something out there that's like simple and elegant and then see how users react and then iterate, you know, then you have more information upon which to build a better um, V2. Yes. Right. So um, that's how I think about it. Got it. Yeah. And so five years, you worked on a lot of stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I worked on um, the Compose experience, uh, which I loved uh, just, you know, cross-platform composer, making it more like, media friendly so worked on clarity of uh like making sure that you knew you know which account you were tweeting from having like inline previews like all these things eventually you know we cut down the amount of time that it took to share a photograph by like 50 percent or something like that so that was really just satisfying you know we also got to work on you know the entire um I don't know, like the a rebranding, mm-hmm. you know, quite a few times. Got to work a little bit on uh, messaging as well, though I left before I think group messaging got um, got launched. Was there anything that totally bombed? <laughs> totally bombed. What yeah. do you mean? Anything you made that people hated? They didn't like it. You know, I'm fortunate enough that I I can't really think of anything that I would say. Cool. Well, that's great. Yeah, <laughs> I just know how uh, how critical, especially like the designer bubble is of every decision that sure the products we make. Well, plus, you know, I don't think about anything as you know. I it was my thing. No, you know, no I may have like not, yeah. led, um, you know, the design effort on you know certain certain um, projects. But even then, you know, you're really working hand in hand with like the rest of the design team, right? Like the platform designers, you funnel all of like the, you know, overarching decisions through. Like if you are shifting a pattern, for instance, you know, or if you're doing anything that might kind of impact um, another feature or aspect of the product, 
you know, design crits, like storytelling, all that stuff Mm -hmm. was really important for all of us to make sure that um, we thought of everything holistically. And I really appreciated that um, because we were all pretty like-minded in that respect. And how long was it before you felt comfortable Oh God, do I even feel comfortable now? I don't, I don't know. Work in progress. Yes, yes. But um, yeah, eventually I think that, I mean, I, if anyone had told me at the beginning that I would be leading projects by the end of my tenure, that, you know, I would actually be mentoring people or that I would be a staff designer or something, I would not have believed that. But, you know, I also had... A uh, great manager, um, and I think it's really important to actually have a manager and have that relationship for a number of years. Uh, I think longevity is like really important for like the growth of um, an IC, right? Uh, so I was really fortunate to have that. Hmm. Uh, I got to kind of nurture this relationship, and and you know you get to know each other, and really um, I got a lot of great support. So yeah. I think that by the end, when I left, I also got a chance to um, do things that weren't specifically, you know, uh, feature related or product related. Um, So one of the things that I think I'm most proud of uh, that I engaged in um, during my time at Twitter was co-founding the Women in UX initiative, Hmm. uh, which is this project this group that really uh, aims to foster, you know, empathetic conversations, inclusive conversations. And it, that's actually a really long story, but um, it's Twitter Ducks now, Twitter Diversity in UX. And I mean, it started with the whole like GitHub thing. Do you remember when the story broke with Julie Horvath? Yes. There was a, yeah. Uh, for people who don't know, and maybe for people like me who need a reminder. <clears throat> So this was, was 2014. It was like no, that recently. Crazy. I, it I seems remember... like it because I remember it was the year that I left. Hmm. I believe, okay. and it was a Sunday afternoon. I remember all this vividly because, you know, the events leading up to the inception of uh, Women in UX, you know, were it's just so clear in my mind because it was such an important um, thing for me, but. I remember the story broke on a Sunday afternoon, if I remember correctly. And I just remember all this dialogue happening on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of anger, understandably, uh, and a lot of... I remember um, some men were feeling very, very defensive about, like, when they would ask questions and they would kind of feel like they were treading, you know, really dangerous territory and things like that. And I remember engaging in a long DM conversation with an iOS engineer from Twitter, actually. And I remember it was such a productive conversation and that we both exited it um, with him feeling like, okay, I can actually engage in this conversation. I can actually ask questions and like feel weird about certain aspects of it and question it, but then still feel like there's a civil discourse. And now I've exited kind of learning more about, you know, where you're coming from. Um, and that night, I remember trying to write a Medium post, I think, about this, about my feelings about it. And I ended up actually thinking, well, you know, instead of 
writing this post, why not kind of redirect that energy to concretely solving, you know, a tractable problem in-house? So I ended up writing a long letter to the design team and, um, you know, really take... It's an unfortunate incident, obviously, Um, but the thing that I'm really grateful for is that it really provided an opportunity for us to talk about stuff that otherwise would have been kind of awkward to bring up at the time. I just didn't know how to do it, but it had been kind of on the back of my mind, you know, just being a woman, you know, in... um, I see leadership positions at a company like Twitter, you know, being in meetings with a bunch of other team leads and being the only woman in the room. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up doing a whole thing where we had a fireside chat. We did a survey uh, of members in the team and, you know, really kind of taking the temperature on how people felt about these issues and like biases in the office and it ended up just being so great you know yeah what'd you learn well we learned that so the survey for for starters was really key because it really anchored the discussion in concrete you know statistics data you know and it really kind of guided us so you know there'd be everyone was able to answer questions um, anonymously but uh indicate their you know, their gender. And so we really kind of broke things down in that way. Like, how are people answering questions depending on, you know, whether you're a man or a woman? You know, questions like, do you feel that you have, you know, equal access? Women have equal access to, you know, certain, certain roles, like uh, executive roles or whatever. And so we took all of those numbers and some of the answers really just kind of, I, I don't know, surprised us, I think. Uh, and it really made it clear that it was the right thing to do to actually engage in these conversations. And so that was super great. We had a fireside chat. We did really learn that some of our assumptions were correct. And for some of us who didn't assume those things or didn't have this inkling of like, oh, something's wrong, now they were able to understand that. It really opened up a lot of great discussions, not just you know, with the group as a whole, but individually. Like, I think I had a conversation with every single person on the design team before we actually had that fireside chat. And, you know, even after I left, the conversation's still going, and it's a really, you know, successful initiative now. So really kudos to the, a lot of kudos to the team for carrying that torch forward. Wow. Yeah. Has that spread outside of Twitter? Is that... Or is that still just like... You know, I feel like, especially given the current climate, a lot of conversations are happening, right. I'm sure. Right, Do you have advice for people who might find themselves in like a situation where you were when you were writing this letter to your team? And like, I don't know, I imagine that's scary and intimidating and you know, I should I even do this? Is it worth it? Should I, I be the one? Yeah, I was fortunate because I didn't feel scared so much just because I felt very safe within Mm -hmm. the design team. You know, we were all friends. Um, But I imagine for a lot of people, that's not the case. So, you know, for me, I feel that relationship building is so important in this industry. Yeah. In particular (laughs) in this industry. Uh Uh-huh. So, you know, rather than thinking about how to 
I don't know. I, I, I would say think kind of beyond these very specific instances where relationships can come in handy and just engage with people, um, yeah. be open to dialogue and don't shy away from differing points of view, yeah. I would say. Because I know, especially now with all that's going on, you know, politically, I know a lot of people who refuse to say, you know, follow anyone or listen to alternative dialogue, right? So I actually follow Donald Trump on Twitter. I follow Richard Spencer. Monster! I, I follow people whom, you know, I don't, it's not pleasant to listen to them, but I think it's really important to be aware of what's happening. And certainly it causes a lot of anxiety, but you can temper that. There are ways to, you know, like maybe you don't spend all day <laughs> on on these platforms and Wait, get worked up. Wait, what else can you do? <laughs> I know, right? What else is there to life? Yeah. But I think that it's educational. And one of the things I try to do is kind of take what I see on these platforms and kind of seeing the general tenor of discussions, you know, with people who might not be on the same side of the political spectrum as I am and try to kind of engage offline with what I've kind of seen and heard. So for instance, you know, my building manager was a staunch Trump supporter, like really very, very conservative. And I remember anytime we would talk about things casually, it would feel like we were both proselytizing to the other person and just trying to convince. And what I ended up doing is thinking about like what outcome do I want um, and the outcome I wanted was to create an environment even in this intimate setting to have a conversation and reach some levels of understanding even if you don't agree um, or end up agreeing so I remember one day kind of steering the conversation away from these explicit direct you know, challenges to our points of view, but asking him about like, so what formed your views? And he yeah. started talking about his dad. Yeah. And then you start, you know, becoming human to each other rather than being Trump supporter or Hillary supporter. And so I think it's important for us to to bring that. I think it's really important to have that kind of like, it's healthy to have that attitude, um, you know, in the workplace as well. And try to really nurture empathy in sure. that way. I want to throw out a question. And yeah. if it's something you don't want to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm always curious talking to folks who are early on at, at places like Twitter, mm -hmm. um, where maybe it's before the impact of the product is realized or the impact the product will have on the world. But I'm curious how you thought about what you're building in terms of like addictiveness. Mm. You know, we were joking about like, what else is there to life than checking Twitter? And we're yeah, joking, sure, obviously. Sure, sure. But there is an aspect of Absolutely. using Twitter that is incredibly addictive. And I, I don't know if you, if that crossed your mind or if it was oh, absolutely. just. So, like, so it's funny because Biz actually got a lot of flack for a statement he made publicly at one point where he said, you know, I don't want, I mean, and the, the little soundbite that was kind of splashed across headlines was, I don't want people to use Twitter that much or like I just, you know, Twitter's not that important to like use all the time. I don't encourage people to use Twitter. Um, and what he really meant was Twitter should 
be this conduit for like information sharing and you know maybe use it you dip in you maybe you get the news that's how i use twitter now is you know it's kind of my uh my way of kind of getting a sense of like what's happening you know within my own network and also more globally nice use of the tagline yes, i like it exactly <laughs> like that but that it's really about fitting into your life it shouldn't be this overwhelming thing that um, creates an imbalance, you know, like go out and, you know, play with your kids or go outside, take a walk. Uh, and he got flack for that because people kind of culled from it this little soundbite that was like, you are not pro Twitter usage or something. Certainly there are a lot of like features in the product that really address that. Like while you were away, um, that's a prime example of like, okay, you don't have to be sitting there scrolling through the entire timeline to get everything that happened in the, you know, past two hours or whatever that you weren't mm -hmm. on it. Um, it's to try to like condense the information in a way that is very like relevant to you sure. or something, right? It takes less time though, huh? right? Like the idea is to like give you a synopsis exactly. rather than like make you read yeah, the whole thing. You know, um, give you what you need and then you're out of there. Yeah. But yeah, there's there's a lot of responsibility in building these products that millions of people use, obviously. And we definitely felt that. We felt that burden. Um, Was there a moment where that burden like became real from like between 2009, 2014? That's like a huge you know, difference in scale. And yes. I, I, I would say that right now is when that, issue is like most explicitly like on people's minds oh Just, yeah yeah you know you've seen articles today yep. you know with the facebook ex-executive or something like that talking about how oh. much guilt he feels sean right? parker yeah. yes no that was no, 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 no. Uh, i was thinking of sean also saying like, social capital. Name. yeah i've created a monster but you know i actually would be surprised if people who have been involved in building these juggernauts right don't feel a sense of responsibility and accountability about what's happening. And it's not an indictment or anything, but certainly you should think about the repercussions of, you know, what you do and what yeah. you make. Did that manifest itself at all within your work or, or the design team while you were there? Um, well, we talked about it a lot. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 again, the while you're away feature. I mean, we talked about things like that all the time. Like, yeah. how do we give the user information in a way that is, you know, most useful to them? Sure. Um, most expedient. And, of course, it takes time for these things to, to launch. So that, that launched um, after I left. But, yeah. Got it. Got it. And then one last question about Twitter. Yeah. So when you joined Sun Microsystems. Yeah. And uh, I think that was one. You, you stayed for a year and then you felt like... Okay, I, I'm not really learning or At maybe Sun, I've, I was I've there for seven years. Okay, so then it was uh, Intuit, yeah. I'm thinking. You were there for a year. Intuit, I was there for yeah, a year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Something like that. So five, okay, seven years at Sun, long time. Yeah. Uh, but even five because years. every year I was like, I'm going to go to grad school <laughs> next year. But then after seven years, like, that's oh, not happening. Psych. Yeah. Um, even five years is like considered a long time. Yeah. Especially at a company like Twitter. Yeah. Uh, did you ever encounter that that moment where you're like, oh my God, I'm not learning anything new or I'm That's, not growing? And did you think about, okay, you know, my year's up, I'm going to swap and check out something else? 
that's why I left actually, you know, toward the end of my tenure. Just happened to be five years. Yeah, because I, for the majority of my time at Twitter, I really was learning a phenomenal amount. And I remember thinking that all the time. Like, wow, I'm learning so much. I'm growing so much. But there does come a time where you feel like my time here is kind of coming to an end. I need to kind of make way for um, other folks. Yeah. And uh, And so you quit. (laughs) Yeah, and I was ready for other other things. Yeah, what'd you Um, do? Well, January of 2014 was when I got this text message from Christine Ahn, who is a policy analyst, whom I'd met randomly at a housewarming party like years prior. And uh, we had hit it off. And I remember having helped her like just on the side with like a website or something um, for the Korea Policy Institute or something like that. And she reached out to me and it had been years since we had spoken. And her... I still I have saved a screenshot of this text message because it was so she said, you know, I need your help. I want to do this global peace march across the Korean DMZ and we're going to have amazing women, international women involved and I want you to be involved. And I, you know, started talking to her about it and it um, became a thing. We we walked across the DMZ in May of 2015. Um, and so that was also kind of the precursor to like thinking about other things, like wanting to see if I can leverage my skills for um, something a little different. And, you know, I hadn't really thought that much about reunification of Koreas. Mm-hmm. And now it's probably one of the most um, issues most near and dear to my heart. So... Uh, it was truly a life-changing event for me. Did and you spend a lot of time over there? In North Korea, we were only there for about a week. Okay. okay. Um, but events leading up to it, just a ton of work, um, just mobilizing. There was a lot of press attention. Um, you know, uh, there were a lot of, like, right-wing conservatives who were not very kind about this. South Korea was kind of digging in, you know, its heels. We had to actually go to the UN and announce that they hadn't given permission yet, whereas North Korea gave permission right away. Um, And of course, it's much more to the benefit of North Korea strategically to say yes and have these like luminaries come and, you know, high profile women like Gloria Steinem and two Nobel Peace laureates and all these things. But South Korea at the time, Park Geun-hye was also in power. She's a neoconservative, um, now in prison, right? And uh, she was not very open to this. Um, So they lied to the New York Times where they said like, oh, we'd never heard of this. Uh, But of course, we would give our consent, you know, if all the right, you know, check boxes are are ticked. But we had a lot of support. We had, you know, endorsements from the Dalai Lama, from former presidents and, uh, you know, Archbishop uh, Desmond Tutu, who was another Nobel Peace Laureate. And so there was a lot of momentum. And I was just really excited to be involved for very selfish reasons initially, because I just thought it would be a cool experience, yeah. you know. And, I'm going to go um, check out North Korea, see what's up. Well, I wasn't even going to go. I was just the tech consultant. Hmm. You know, I created the identity system for them, a really simple, like, website introducing the um, delegates. So there were 30 delegates, you know, international women, um, international activists and leaders, 
Um, so Gloria Steinem, of course, is an iconic American um, feminist and writer. Um, we had Lema Bowie, who was the 2011 Nobel Peace Laureate, who had, you know, seated the first female president in an African nation, um, you know, helped end the Second Liberian War, I think. And Murad McGuire, who was the 1976 laureate, who'd like reduced the violence in Northern Ireland by 70% through like peaceful means. Um, we had like artists, we had writers, we had academics, we had an attorney from Amnesty International. So a lot of amazing women who came together. And so there were 30 of them. And then the rest of us, there were about 10. There was a small number of, um, there was a documentary film crew. There was me. There were two uh, uh, journalists, one from Associated Press, one on assignment from New York Times. And so we flew to Beijing and, you know, got our visas and then flew to Pyongyang. And it was all very surreal, that whole experience. Um, even flying to Beijing, I didn't know it was, if I was going to get um, a lot on the plane because I didn't have a visa. Mm-hmm. And I had to explain that, well, I had this letter from... North Korea <laughs> saying that we should be allowed in because we have a 72-hour period. That's crazy. Yeah. Like, do you have South Korean citizenship? Because you were born... You know, I have a South Korean passport, which has expired, but I'm a U.S. citizen now, and who knows if I'd be able to renew that citizenship yeah. or not, but South Koreans are not allowed. That's what I'm thinking is like, in holy North shit. Korea. There used to be one phone, apparently, in North Korea with which you could call, make a call across the border. And even that doesn't exist anymore. Because we tried. We actually needed to contact our contingent in South Korea because we were, the whole thing was, you know, we start with these symposiums and peace talks in North Korea, walk across the border and continue with South Korean women, you know, with this like symbolic gesture of crossing this border that even, you know, South that South Koreans are not allowed to do, even if it's their country. Uh, And... I don't know. It was just a surreal experience, you know. Um, we stayed at this hotel called Yangakdo International Hotel, and we called it Alcatraz because it was literally surrounded by a moat. It's where they put people who, um, larger groups that they don't quite trust. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that every night the drawbridge goes up. and Pretty much. Wow. Um, but I... You know, it was such a powerful experience. Like, I had so many questions before going. I was so fortunate to be allowed to go. Um, and, you know, I didn't know what the language would be like. Is the Korean going to be different? Like, do they, what is, what is it like to walk the streets? Like, do they have businesses? Do they have restaurants? Like, do they have public transport? I didn't mm-hmm. know any of these things. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I was so fortunate to be able to like engage one-on-one with, you know, North Korean women and to have conversations very intimately. Um, I actually wrote a, an essay, a photo essay on Medium recently. And it took me two years to write that because I actually came back from that trip and I was so, um, I was in such a mindset that I couldn't continue like living here as I had been. So I pretty much like I sold a lot of my belongings, put the rest in storage and I just like left. I left on a one-way ticket um, to try to process this. And the idea was that I would, the output would be like an essay. Um, 
something that would kind of settle, you know, what I had experienced, what it meant for me, and what it meant for, you know, contributions that I would make in the future. And I couldn't do it. It was just too overwhelming. It was just too much. And I was finally able to do it this year. And it just brought back, like, so many feelings and memories and some of these, like, really powerful moments of connection Hmm. there. And so... What does it look like for you today? Are you still involved or, or doing anything? I am um, an unofficial advisor. I actually, uh, this last time when I went back to scout out New York as my new home, um, I saw a bunch of, you know, delegates. You know, I talked to Gloria mm-hmm. and I'm constantly in touch with Christine, who was the organizer. Um, and so, yeah, I hope to contribute more. Cool. And I think that what I want to explore is contributing from the place of an artist you know, because I think that that's where I would be most effective um, in in bringing something to the table for this is to try to create narratives that are approachable for people who don't know much about the Korean War and how it's still ongoing and how there are millions of families still separated. Mm-hmm. And it's just heartbreaking. I don't know if you guys have ever seen like some videos of these reunions that happen once in a blue moon organized by the Red Cross where uh, members of families can meet for like three days or something. It's nothing. And it's highly monitored and all that. But it's just heartbreaking, you know? Like imagine um, not being able to see like your brother or mother, son or daughter. Brian. Brian. (laughs) Yeah. That would be the hardest (laughs) hardest thing. Hi, Sarah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I went to the DMZ and there was the, the, the bridge of, it was like, had a, like a very significant name but it was they said it was like the bridge where you had to make the choice of which side you wanted to end up on hmm. and that was where like families got torn apart because like some people wanted yeah. to, to go north some people wanted to go south hmm. and like once you cross there's no going back that is interesting that was on a tour so maybe okay. i got different information yeah, than you, yeah, but yeah. i do remember being there right. being like fuck like it's pretty intense it's really intense it's yeah. intense and it's unjust mm-hmm. and um you know I hope that in my lifetime I see my motherland reunited again. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's, yeah, it's pretty important in my life. And I hope that I get to make um, some contributions that, you know, help people understand or make people more open to to dialogue on this front. Got to grow that empathy. I know. (laughs) We're just coming back to the same thing over and over. over. Yeah, overused word at this point, but... I don't know. We need to figure out some other other terms. I feel like mm. maybe you just answered this, but we like to end each episode of the show by asking what keeps you up at night. Wow, it's already been an hour? It's already been over an That's hour. That's amazing. Yeah. I talk too much? No. Okay. Good. You talked no. as much as we <laughs> wanted you to talk. <laughs> uh, what keeps up keeps me up at night? And I feel like you kind of just answered that with... Yeah. With I guess. What doesn't on? keep me up at night? Right? I don't know. I'm a very anxious person. Um, I don't know. I guess there's like multiple levels of things, like on a personal level, you know, on a political level and on a global level. But I guess, I don't know. This might sound trite, but um, I get very anxious about uh, the destruction of the environment. Um, recently, trite. well, Hold on. not, Hold on. not trite, but kind Trout. of like everyone, <laughs> everyone talks about, I, I don't know. It just I see, kind I of see. seems like a very, um, it's a good thing to talk thing. about and like, yeah, yeah. 
But uh, yeah, I get very anxious about that, about, you know, how wasteful we can be and about how, I don't know, recently, like, the Trump administration reduced the monuments in, I guess, Bears the, years yeah, and, yeah, by like 80% mm-hmm. and the other one by like. It looks like a, uh, what's the name of when you like change a county's shape um, to get Redistricting? Votes. It's like an extension gerrymandering. Of that. Gerrymandering. Yeah. It looks like one of those maps, like where it like made sense before, and now it's just like, Neh. yeah, it's quite sad. It's a squiggle. So that definitely worries me. And again, you know, this is another opportunity I think for people who are in tech or design to really think about like extending, like leveraging their skills mm-hmm. to help out outside of the sphere of just like for profit businesses. I guess. Sure. So that's it. That's awesome. Thanks so much for coming Thank to hang out. Thank you so much for having Before you leave. Yeah. Glad we got to make it work. Yeah. Thank you. That was episode 228. Thank you so much to Colleen for joining us. Thank you to you for listening. Let us know what you thought uh, on our community site at spectrum.chat slash specfm. Every episode is posted into the Design Details channel there. Uh, but beyond that, you can go around, post your work, get feedback, ask questions, share with others. There's a ton of actual design communities all over spectrum so you can even share the apps that you make with uh our 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 good friends and sponsor fuse tools yeah they actually have their own community too yep they're gonna help you make really wonderful applications for ios and android with a simple pipeline powerful set of tools go check them out at fusetools.com stop prototyping apps and actually build real things at fusetools.com it's totally available for free go through the documentation and the features get a sense for what's possible and get started today And if you want to upgrade to that pro plan, use the promo code DD. That's going to save you 70% off that pro plan uh, for a year. Thanks again to Fuse, and we'll see you in 2018. Love you, bye.